to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Vance Havner. He wrote for religious publications, one of them, Revelation, edited by Donald Gray Barnhouse of Philadelphia. Barnhouse was helpful in opening doors up north for Bible conferences. Moody Bible Institute's Founders Week, Winona Lake, Montrose, Maranatha, Pinebrook, and on the West Coast, the Tory Conference in Los Angeles. Vance Havner's sermon is on Revelation chapter 3. To the church in Philadelphia, his message is Lord of the Open Door. Now this morning we come to the church at Philadelphia, and I always like to get around to that church. After uh, Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis, you kind of like a change. And so you have it here, uh, Revelation 3, verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. <clears throat> For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now as in the case of Smyrna, this church was not bidden to repent. <clears throat> they have a great deal in common. Our Lord begins by announcing himself here as he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. And of course all Bible students know that in order to get our bearings there, we have to go back to the 22nd chapter of Isaiah, where God is dealing with a treasure, a crook, by the name of Shebna, and says in the 15th verse of Isaiah 22, Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Go get thee unto this treasure, even unto Shebna, which is over the house, and say, What hast thou here, and whom hast thou here, that thou hast hewed thee out of sepulchre here? As he that heweth him out of sepulchre on high, and that graveth an habitation for himself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will carry thee away with a mighty captivity, and will surely cover thee. He will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. There shalt thou die, and there... The chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of thy Lord's house, and I will drive thee from thy station. And from thy state shall he pull thee down. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. 
and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah and the key of the house of David. Will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. That prefigures what we have here, of course. And here was a man who uh, tried to uh, feather his nest and make himself comfortable. And uh, God threw him out with a vengeance. Then, of course, we uh, have only to turn back a few pages in uh, uh, Isaiah to the 6th chapter. And we read something else about this uh, <coughs> house of David. Or rather, the ninth chapter, in which uh, we read... Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Then we remember what the angel said to Mary in Luke 1, 32, 33. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. You remember that when our Lord hung on the cross, a superscription over his head bore the uh, words, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He was, and he is, and he shall be, King of the Jews. The key of the house of David is his. By law and by lineage and by the eternal will of God, he is the heir to the earthly, visible, actual throne of David. And until he reigns, God's chosen people have no true head. He alone has the keys to David's house. And when the Lord shuts it, no man can open it. He's the keeper of the keys. I like to think of him in that capacity. He has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He has the keys to God's presence. He has the keys to eternal life. He has the keys to the storehouse of divine truth. He has the keys to heaven itself. And he has the keys to all earthly circumstance because Paul called himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ, not the prisoner of Rome. He knew that back of all earthly incarceration, there stood the real keeper of the keys. And here in Revelation 1.18, he has the keys of hell and of death. And uh, he has more keys than that. Verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. He has the keys to the doors of Christian service. I sometimes think we're in danger of forgetting that today. Paul said that he had an open door at Ephesus and in Macedonia. Laodicea is the church of the closed door. Philadelphia is the church of the open door. You remember that between the ascension and uh, Pentecost, between the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, that the believers were behind closed doors for fear. And that's where a lot of God's people are today, behind closed doors, scared, living between Easter and Pentecost. As Dr. Scroggy said, on the right side of justification and on the wrong side of sanctification, on the right side of pardon and on the wrong side of power. A timid church in a tortured world. Somebody has said 
that what worries us most today is not the wolfishness of the devil's wolves, but the sheepishness of the Lord's sheep. Timid. <clears throat> we're not only behind closed doors, we're before closed doors. Closed in China. Closed in the Iron Curtain. Closed the world around. But when the church repents and obeys the Lord, it becomes a church of the open door. Ministers ought to remember, and sometimes when I'm speaking to preachers, I talk about the minister and revival, and I speak of the angels of these churches. Alexander White, in his wonderful Bible characters, never gets around to the churches at all. He deals only with the, the messenger to each church. Don't forget that every one of these letters was written to the preacher. Because uh, in a real sense, every preacher is an angel. Now that might tax your imagination a little bit. But uh, they're not sprouting any wings, I know. But they are the messengers. And every one of these messages is addressed first to the preacher. I wonder sometimes whether revival will rise much higher than the ministry. I think the fire ought to start in the pulpit and blow toward the congregation. Now, it can start somewhere else, and notice here that the Lord goes all the way from the ministers to the laity, if any man will hear my voice. The preacher ought to start it, but if he doesn't, the janitor could. If any man, you've got everybody in here, you've got all the church members in between, you've got the local church, but it starts with the preacher. It's the easiest thing in the world to prepare ten sermons on revival and never have one in your own heart. We've had enough preaching on it to have set the world on fire. How to have a revival and the conditions of revival and the causes of revival and the results of revival, but we don't have the revival. And it ought to start with the angel of the church. Every one of these messages pictures a preacher too. Sometimes I think the hardest person in the world to wake up today is the bishop of Laodicea. Rich, increased with goods, doing pretty well, doesn't need a thing in the world, self-sufficient. And how about the pastor of the first church at Ephesus? A lot going on. Sometimes that first love has died down. So every preacher ought to go through this gallery and say, now which one of these preachers am I? Am I the minister at Sardis? I have a name to be a live wire preacher and I'm as dead as a dodo in the sight of the Lord. Am I the minister at Pergamos Thyatira? Tolerant of evil when I ought to stand in the pulpit and thunder against it? And then we have these dear ministers at Smyrna and Philadelphia too. Some of them are living out at places where the going's rough. Some of them have married good women who go through all those years and never had a good coat to wear. Some of them never rode in a brand new automobile. Oh, I think when we get to heaven, there'll be a great upset in who's great and who's not great up there. And there'll be some little country preachers and some little country preachers' wives. They were the pastor at Smyrna and the pastor at Philadelphia, and they'll get a great reward. Now, I don't know which is your category, but don't forget this. God's running the preaching business. Sometimes we forget that. We think we have to pull wires and politic and know the right people. 
And we spend too much time hunched over cafeteria tables making contacts when we ought to be getting in touch with heaven. I think if we spent less time recommending ourselves to the brethren and more time being approved unto God, we might get along better. The Christ of the open door can open doors that no man can shut. And if you're in the will of God and giving God's message, you don't have to cool your heels in the ante room of anybody's sanctum sanctorum asking whether you can preach or not. Jesus Christ runs the preaching business. Now, Satan can hinder you. I know that. It's a theological question. How far can the devil hinder the work of God? I wouldn't think of going into that this morning. But my Lord is the Lord of the open door. I want to stand this morning and give testimony to this fact. I've been preaching for over 40 years, and I have proved this Philadelphia promise again and again and again. I am under no auspices or sponsorship except the call and commission of the Lord. I committed that to the Lord a long time ago. I decided he knew how to do it, and I didn't. And I would look to him to clear the track and open doors. And I want to say it to his glory that to this good hour I have never had to lift a finger. I have never written to anybody who has not first written to me about my engagements. And it's all the Lord's doing. There was a barren period in my life when I was not in his will that I tried to get into doors. I tried to butt them open with my head and the Lord gave me a good spanking. And when I said, Lord, I don't know how to do it, I'll turn it over to you, he has proved his promise. Promotion does not come from the south or the east or the west. But if you commit your way unto the Lord, trust also in him, he'll bring it to pass. There is no man and no group and no organization that hold the keys to Christian service. Jesus Christ has them. And the Lord of the vineyard is still in charge, and the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Now notice it doesn't say he's out to show them strong in his behalf. He's out to show himself strong in their behalf. It's the easiest thing in the world to try to show what you can do for God. God's out trying to show what he can do through you. God's not depending on talent scouts nor is the ministry in the hands of ecclesiastical officials. Now there's a place for earthly headquarters, of course. Our religious bodies have to have centers down here from which to operate, and it's all right to report to headquarters. But when Paul was called to preach, he reported to heavenly headquarters. I conferred not with flesh and blood. That wasn't the first thing he did. He did go up to headquarters at Jerusalem, but he first went to Arabia. Had a going over with God. It's a wonderful thing to keep in touch with heavenly headquarters. You know, it's always easy to uh, get to the main office. I can be riding on an old Pullman train in the middle of the night, and all I've got to do is just start praying, and I'm in touch with headquarters. Why, you don't even have to call up anybody. It doesn't take as long as a telephone call. 
Sometimes I start out to walk around the lake down where I live. I say to my wife, I'm just, I'm going to take a stroll and report to the main office. I can pray better walking than I can any other way. You pray whichever way you can pray the best. You can't pray so well on your knees, well, walk or do something, but, but pray. And You know, it, when, when your headquarters is heaven, that gives you a glorious liberty. It ought to be every preacher's headquarters. And don't forget that he has the keys. They don't have them down here, beloved. He has them. Now he says in uh, verse 8, Thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. What an encouraging thing from the Lord of the open door. And that's all you have to have. They didn't have great strength. There's both positive and negative in this. Thou hast a little strength, has kept my word, has not denied my name. It's not great strength. It's not great ability. It's dependability. It's a little strength faithfully used instead of much strength flashily and fitfully used. Just give God what you have. He's in charge. I remember when I gave up my last pastorate. I walked out and got into the car of one of the deacons, and he said, well, you're out of work. I said, no, I've just changed jobs. I still have the same boss. It's all under the law. Now we have here in verse 9 a very interesting statement. <clears throat> Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. What an encouragement. I will make your enemies sit at your feet. You know, sometimes we want to do it. We want to make them sit at our feet. We want to make them bow. Don't you ever forget, beloved, that the battle is the Lord's. Vengeance is his. He will repay. Say not thou, I will recompense evil, but wait on the Lord, and he shall save thee. There have been some times in my life when I didn't think I had a square deal. And then I wanted to pitch in. I thought, now nah, I'll get in here and straighten out this thing. That never pays. The Lord will straighten it out. I was down in Louisiana in a Bible conference, and on the program there was a great Negro preacher. An excellent preacher. A man with a great education and with all a tender heart, <clears throat> and that fervor. He preached an unforgettable sermon one day. On you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And he said this. He said, the greatest friend of truth is time. He said, error is always in a hurry. Error wants to do it right now. He said, God can afford to wait. And he said, you can too. Don't get in a fever and a frenzy. Wait on the Lord. He'll vindicate your cause. And if time does not vindicate it, eternity will. Await the vindication of eternity. It was a great message. And that's what you have here. God saying to these Philadelphian Christians, and I think that Philadelphia and Laodicea are concurrent today. I think they exist at the same time. And we have Philadelphia now, and God is saying to the faithful Philadelphian, 
Christians. Don't you get in there and try to make everybody come and bow at your feet. The Lord will take care of it. Then we have a promise in verse 10, which I think has to do with the great tribulation prophetically. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Dr. Campbell Morgan said its final fulfillment will undoubtedly be realized by those who, loyal to his word and not denying his name, shall be gathered out of the world at his second coming before the judgment that must usher in the setting up of his kingdom on earth. There are two keeps here. Thou hast kept, I will keep. Notice, if we keep the first, he'll take care of the second. Thou hast kept, verse 10. Verse 8, thou hast kept my word. Verse 10, thou hast kept the word of my patience. I also will keep thee. Now that's a bona fide promise from the word of God. Have you ever looked at that precious phrase, the word of his patience? What is that? It's his enduring word, the unconquerable cause which persists and perseveres through all opposition, the gospel which is bound to win, and we're to endure as it endures and as he endures. I know it looks sometimes like the church has been defeated and like the devil's having his way, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yes, I know, but that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. Sometimes it's pretty hard to believe we're on the winning side, but we are, and we need to keep the word of his patience. God's not in a hurry. If God had been in a hurry, he would have wound up this mess a long time ago, and you wonder sometimes why he doesn't. You feel like you'd like to, wouldn't you? But you don't have that uh, authority. God's not in a hurry. We get nervous. We're so impatient today. Everybody's about three jumps from a nervous breakdown now, you know. Tearing around all the time. I think the patron saint of most people today is St. Vitus. <laughs> and we want to get it all over with. We, if I'm right, and I've got to have my way about this thing. And we storm, and we splutter, and we fume. We get all worked up about it. God takes his time. God works quietly. He can draw more water from this earth without a bit of noise than you make getting one bucket full out of a well. The dew, did you ever hear the dew fall? Did you ever see, the, did you ever hear the sun rise? The greatest things make the least noise. God takes his time. And so I think we have a prefiguring there also of the great trouble that's ahead. But in verse 11, look, there the Lord's return. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Now to Sardis, it was a threat, you remember, last night. Said, I'm coming back. Look out. Here, it's a promise full of comfort to these dear people. It's different things to different people. And he couples it with the commandment, do something about it. I'm so glad that in the Bible, prophecy never leaves us out on a limb. You always have it joined with practical duty. 
Many, many years ago, I went to New York Calvary Baptist Church for, to a prophetic conference, and I, I had just gotten out of the woods. I didn't know much about prophecy. Didn't know much about anything else. And I said, Lord, what am I going to do up there? I looked over the program. They had Gabeline and Ironside and Barnhouse and all these experts. And in some strange way, I, they'd asked me up there, and I said, now, Lord, what will I do? Why, I don't know much about the abomination, the desolation, and the great tribulation, and Gog and Magog, and what have you. I said, Lord, I'm going to get out in water too deep up there. If you don't help me, you got me into this now, you're going to have to get me out. I've told the Lord that a lot of times. I don't think it's irreverent. He always gets me out. If he gets you in, he'll get you out. But you don't need to think every time you get into some kind of a mess that you can claim that problem. I said, now, Lord, uh, you, you give me something that will fit in. So he gave me this text. Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be? And I said, that's where I come in. I'll get up and talk about all these things being dissolved. And these other fellows can take all of them. Then I'll rise and say, all right, what are you going to do about it? That's where I'll come in. So I let Ironside and Gabeline and all the rest of them talk about all that, and then I just rose and said, oh, so what? What are you going to do? That's where we come in. I'm so glad that my Bible says the night is far spent, the day is at hand. It doesn't say the day is far spent and the night is at hand. And if we have this hope, we purify ourselves. So the Lord says here, hold fast that which thou hast, let no man take thy crown. There's a double deposit, you know. Second Timothy, the very first chapter, Paul says, I know that he'll keep that which I've deposited. Now the Bible scholars argue about that. They say they're not right sure whether that's something that uh, we're to deposit with the Lord or something that God deposits with us. Well, I'll not enter into all that. I think it's what we deposit with the Lord there. But he goes right on to say to Timothy, now you keep what's committed to your trust. There's a double deposit here. We have deposited everything with the Lord, and he has deposited to us a charge. I'm so glad that Mr. Jenkins had you to sing that song. Why, I told him a while ago he couldn't have picked a better one. A charge to keep I have, a God to glorify. Never dying soul to save, to fit it for the sky. To serve this present age, my calling to fulfill. Oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. Arm me with jealous care as in thy sight to live. And oh, thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict account to give. We have a charge to keep. I think I'd like to get out a new songbook one of these days and call it the Mothball Edition. These old songs we're not singing much. And this is one of them. This was written back in the days of beefsteak theology, before the cream puff era came along. Ah, there's meat here. This will stick to your ribs, strengthen your moral backbone. Hold fast. Hold fast that which is good, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Hold fast the form of sound words, 2 Timothy 1.13. Hold fast your confidence and rejoicing of hope firm unto the end, Hebrews 3, 6. Hold fast our profession, Hebrews 4, 14. Hold fast the tradition, 2 Thessalonians 2, 15. Hold that which thou hast. Why? 
Let no man take thy crown. Now that's not eternal life. They're not going to take that. Neither man nor the devil can pluck us out of the hand of the Father and the hand of the Son. We're saved by faith, but we're rewarded by works and we can be cheated out of our reward. And there are things that can cause us to drop some things that we hold fast and rob us of time and of the joy of salvation. Some things can quench the Spirit. And unless we watch and pray and hold these things fast, we shall lose our crown. If we ever needed to be on guard, it is today. The temper of the times is against us. We're living in a world that's been chloroformed by the powers of darkness. And a lot of God's people are living in a stupor today. Now the way to get out of a stupor, of course, is not by getting into a stew. I don't mean that. But do wake up and hold fast. Then our natures are against being alert because we're lazy. We float downstream. We forget the things which we've heard and drift away from them. If you're going to raise a garden, you have to fight bugs and contend with the weather and the neighbor's chickens and, oh, I know not what all. If you're going to raise weeds, you don't have to worry about it. Have you got a victory garden in your heart? You remember the victory gardens in the war? We ought to raise a victory garden in our hearts, but that takes work. It takes a lot of work. And then some people so interpret grace, you know, that they don't feel any personal responsibility to watch and to pray. Oh, Dr. Torrey was not deceived about this. In my last Bible conference, the granddaughter of Dr. Torrey attended and uh, told us a lot of interesting things that I hadn't known before about that great old champion of the truth. He said, we hear about the rest of faith. But there is a fight of faith in prayer as well as in effort. Those who would have us believe that they have attained to some sublime height of faith and trust because they never know any agony or conflict in prayer are beyond their Lord and the mightiest victors for God both in effort and in prayer that the ages of history have known. How true. Don't misinterpret the victorious life to mean that you don't have a battle. Here's another song out of the mothball edition. Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me on to God? No. I must fight if I would win. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil. Endure the pain supported by thy word then discouragement will do it. Some people are just human wet blankets. They've never felt the power of God in their own lives and they discredit his power in anybody else. And if a man does rise with God on him today, they try to explain it away by other explanations. And then you have the peril of low spirits as well as high spirits. Neither height nor depth can separate us from the love of God, but you want to look out for both. Sometimes high spirits will upset you. Sometimes low spirits. Discouragement. Elijah and John the Baptist were the two ruggedest characters in the Bible. They both had something like a nervous breakdown. They folded up temporarily. Elijah under the juniper and John the Baptist there in prison. Then success will do it. Don't you let heaven or earth 
The seventh heaven experience, your high experience, don't let it upset you. Paul had to have a thorn in the flesh to counterbalance what he'd seen up there, lest he be exalted. Don't let this world reward you and steal your message. Old Abram wouldn't let the king of Sodom make him rich. Many a man has started out with a real message and the devil said, well, you'll never put that preacher out of business by opposition, so we'll give him a high seat in the synagogue and we'll promote him into silence. More than one preacher has been promoted into silence. There was a time when he cried out and thundered against sin, and then the devil was clever. The devil knew that the more you fight that man, the bigger fight he'll put up for God. So he exalts him. You know, if you feather the nest too well, the eaglets do not fly. Every once in a while, I go back to old Alexander White's sermon on the disobedient prophet. It scares me nearly to death every time I read it because he was almost a frightening preacher. But I never hear anybody preach about the disobedient prophet who went down there and appeared before the king and condemned evil and the king was smitten and a revival broke out. And uh, there were a couple of fellows there who went back and told their father, who was an old prophet who maybe had had God's power on him one time, but he had been promoted politically. And he was living off the fat of the land, and he didn't have any word from God. And these boys came and said, Say, there's a prophet in town. You ought to have been there. He has something rebuked a king, and the king invited him for dinner, and he said, no thanks, I've got orders from God not to eat with anybody today, I'm taking off for home. And that old crafty prophet, I don't know what caused him to do it, it may have been memories of a better day when the hand of God was on him. It may have been jealousy. Took out after that prophet and said, I want you to have dinner at my house, I'm a preacher just like you are. Now look, that prophet could turn down a king and he let a preacher fool him. And this false prophet said, uh, it's all right, I've heard from heaven too, you know, I'm, I'm a preacher. Listen, you look out for these folks that have heard from God since you have. Now, it's all right, in a multitude of counselors, there's safety, and I appreciate good advice, but carry a little salt shaker around with you. And take a lot you hear with a good generous dose. And when some good brother comes up and says, now I've had later information, you better say, no, thank you. And the Lord has not related to me as yet not direct, and I won't take it second hand. But that man went, and Campbell Morgan used to say that more prophets are ruined by dining out than any other way. Old John Bunyan used to say, the effect of many a Sunday sermon is lost in the Sunday dinner. You know there's a lot of truth to that. It's not a good idea to be hail fellow well met very far 
All this talk about letting your hair down and so on. Well, I know there's a proper relaxation, but you've got to watch it. Many a man has spoken for God and then he's got out in a lot of jesting and tomfoolery around the table somewhere and lost all the influence that he had in the pulpit. They're going to criticize you anyhow. Might as well be about that as anything else that you're not too sociable. At any rate, beloved, study your own case. If others can do it and get away with it, all right, if they can keep their crown, but don't you judge them, but don't you let them judge you. Once in a while, like that good man in England, a common working man, every once in a while he'd leave the factory and climb to the top of a high hill. And somebody asked him why. He said, well, I have to work down there in all this profanity and all this godlessness. He said, I get up here on the hill once in a while just to remind myself that I have a soul. It's a good thing to get away somewhere and remind yourself, after all, that you're not just a decaying carcass haunted by a dissatisfied ghost. Get away! It's so easy to adjust to the prevailing temperature. It's so easy, you know, just to fit in with the times like that dear lady who went to the bookstore and wanted a set of books, any kind of books, it didn't matter what was in the books, just as long as the color of the books matched the furniture in the library. We've a lot of dear people today who just fit in, no matter what it involves, just as long as it makes, fits the color scheme. And do you know that the Bible word for the fashion of this world is scheme? The scheme of this world passeth away. And you want to fit into the color scheme. It's not easy, you know, to be an angular sort of character, not fit in with the world's program. Don't let it squeeze you into its mold, Dr. Phillips says. Dr. Robertson says don't let it make, don't make a fashion plate out of it. Don't you fit into the color scheme of this age. Be not conformed to the to this world. Sometimes the family can steal your crown. That's why Jesus said he came to divide families, Matthew 10. They can do it sometimes, if no other way, just by keeping you away from church. I had an old-fashioned dad, when we had company on Sunday, he'd say, will you go to church with me? And if they said no, they didn't say, well, make yourself at home. I'll be back about 12.30. And that was it. And everybody knew that was it, too. Father didn't worry about the niceties of it. He hadn't read up on any of the little books about how to do and all such situations as that. He just said, that's it. So, beloved, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. But the one that's most likely to steal your crown is yourself. So, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And so I close with one more verse out of the mothball edition. My soul be on thy guard, ten thousand foes arise. The hosts of sin are pressing hard to draw thee from the sky. Ne'er think the victory won or lay thine armor down. The work of faith will not be done till thou obtain the crown. Look out.
Don't let yourself or anybody else steal the crown of your reward. If these words have been spoken to somebody, some servant of God, distressed about what to do, and I never had more of them coming to me than these days, commit your case to the Lord of Philadelphia and the keeper of the keys. He still has them. And he'll set before you an open door and no man can shut. But don't you try to open it. But commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in him. And he'll bring it to pass. If you don't have much strength, use what you have and keep the word of his patience with all diligence and hold fast what you have that no man take you crying. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee that even in this day when there's so much darkness around us, when men are perplexed and their hearts failing them for fear, we thank Thee that even in the age of Laodicea, that it's also the age of Philadelphia. We thank Thee for Thy Gideon's band, for Thy faithful remnant, some of them don't have much strength, but they don't deny the name. And they've kept the word of thy patience, and sometimes we get weary in this well-doing. We pray this morning that by thy Holy Spirit, through thy word, this word of this morning, thou wilt encourage all who are sore beset, and puzzled, and up against a lot of problems, some of them about their life work. Help them to remember that it's not in the hands of man. Men can hinder sometimes. The devil can hinder sometimes. But the Lord of the keys, the keeper of the keys, the Lord of Philadelphia, is still running the business. We thank thee that thou art. And so, our Father, help us in the light of all this to abound in the work of the Lord, but we cannot abound until we first abide. And so help us to abide, rest in thee, commit our work to thee, and we shall bear much fruit. Help us to be abiding and abounding. And we pray for any who may be distracted and don't know what to do because they don't know the Lord of Philadelphia, help them to come to him, receive him into their hearts, and he will show them the way to go. Bless the truth to all our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to Vance Havner. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.